Well, good morning. We're continuing this morning in our series in Luke, The Coming of the King, looking at the first four chapters over the course of this summer in the Gospel according to Luke. Last week, if you remember, if you were here, we looked at the birth of Jesus foretold and how the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary in this backwater town of Nazareth and the the incredible nature of that announcement. Today, we're just proceeding on to the text, looking at one chunk, which is the encounter between Mary and Elizabeth, and then the, the, the praise that flows from that encounter in this text traditionally known as the Magnificat. Now, Magnificat, I'm told, is the, uh, just the Latin verb for uh, the, where Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, hence it gets the name Magnificat. So a fun factoid for you to take home and uh, share with family and friends if uh, you're so inclined. Um, but with that said, let's move in to the text and read. I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. You can follow along in your bulletins or, of course, in your Bibles. And so please follow along as I read. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked at the humble, looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word We ask that right now you know where each one of us in this congregation is at. You know the pride that is in many of our hearts, and you know the discouragement that also resides there. And so we ask by your Spirit, would you draw us to your Word, as you draw us to your Word and you draw us to yourself this morning, would you speak exactly what we need to hear to our hearts? For your Word is able to... to Go forth and do and accomplish what you will. And we just ask that all of us, whether we are struggling with pride or whether we need encouragement right now, would leave here uh, more assured that you are the transcendent, all-powerful God who's yet at the same time imminently involved in our lives, who loves us, who cares for us, whose tender mercy is for us as your people. So we ask that your word would accomplish all of these things through the preached word. And we pray this in the matchless name of Christ, Jesus our Lord. Amen. 
Well, in our text last week, we met Mary for the first time. And like I said, we heard this incredible announcement about the angel Gabriel concerning this child who was in her womb, whom she, she, whom she would bear, and the significance of who this child would be. This would be the Messiah. This would be God incarnate who she was bearing. Not only had God, through the angel Gabriel, visited this no-name teenage girl in this backwater Galilean town of Nazareth, that alone would be worth singing about, right? But this announcement that the angel Gabriel brought signaled something even greater was happening. God was on the move. He was finally answering his promises, those foretold long ago by the prophets of old, to deliver his people and restore their hopes. And as soon as Mary responds to the angel Gabriel and he departs, we find Mary's immediate response is to celebrate it, right? What we'll see is she can't contain her joy. As the text tells us in 139, she went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. It's almost as if she couldn't contain herself. She had to get the news out there to somebody. God was going to act again for his people, and she would have an instrumental role to play in this process. Mary's response, I find it somewhat humorous in 138, is, is a very tempered, sort of mild response that almost has the effect of saying to Gabriel, sounds good, I'm all on board, right? But what we find in our text today is that response when the angel Gabriel leaves just couldn't be contained. She has to delight, and she has to find somebody else to delight with her in this amazing thing that God is doing. I'm sure many of us can relate, too, with this movement of elation or this movement of joy. I know that I can. When we receive really good or really exciting news in our lives or something awesome happens, there's something in all of us that just has to celebrate it, right? There's something in all of us that springs up, and we want to include others in our joy. And even though some of us might be more introverted than others, I bet we all still have ways that we go about doing that. You know, sometimes I think that we men especially like to play it kind of cool. We might not hurriedly call everybody on our contact list or send out a mass text when things awesome happen in our lives. We tend to be a little bit more restrained than that. But if you're anything like me, we'll often find ways to casually slip wonderful news into ordinary conversation because there's something inside of us that just wants other people to participate in our joy. And in this respect, I think of Michael Scott from the television series, The Office, if you're familiar with that series. Just real briefly, in this television series, if you're unfamiliar with it, Michael Scott is the uh, regional boss of a small paper supply company called Dunder Mifflin. And overall, he's, he's a very incompetent boss, but somehow he gets the job done. And he's also a boss whose many attempts at humor are more often than not highly offensive and are just downright awkward. And he's generally pretty clueless to that fact. But he's also someone who's motivated in his awkward humor and in his very strange interactions with people. He's motivated by a desire to have as many friends as he can for other people to participate in his joy with him. Case in point, an episode that I watched pretty recently, in fact. In one episode, it takes place on his birthday, Michael Scott's birthday. There's one scene where Michael is standing in the kitchen 
So if you picture like a closed corridor with a door on either end, and he's standing in this kitchen with his hand on a box of clo a closed box of donuts that he clearly brought and bought for himself. And he's just standing there, and you can tell by his demeanor that he's anxiously waiting for somebody else to come into the kitchen, anybody else to come into the kitchen. And then in a split second, somebody walks to the kitchen, walks into the kitchen, and he pretends, he kind of twists his body like he just walked into the kitchen too, and like he's surprised that there's this box of donuts there. And he says very coolly, oh, look, I guess somebody brought donuts in for my birthday. <laughs> Like Michael Scott, and I hope that if you've ever watched The Office that there's not much that we can identify with Michael on, but in this case, like Michael, we might try to play it off rather cool and relaxed, but deep down inside of us, when something good happens in our lives, or when it's our birthday, for instance, we just need to celebrate with other people. We want the first opportunity to let people know that something is happening in our lives that's awesome, and we want people to join in that. So whatever it may look like in your life, there's this natural overflow or outpouring that spills into our other relationships to one degree or another. And this is the picture invoked or evoked in our text this morning. Mary, she first submits to what's going to happen to her in 138, the conclusion to last week's text. The angel Gabriel departs, and then Mary lets down her guard. She, she just has to include somebody else in her joy, and so she makes, with haste, as the text says, this 80 to 100 mile journey north to, a, to the hill country of Judea, but it's a journey that she just had to make. She's compelled to make it out of joy. Now, last week, we talked about how that text, Mary's original encounter with the angel Gabriel, reflected what we'll call the music and the dance of the gospel, and how together we participate in the music and the dance of the gospel experience true human flourishing, true biblical fullness, as the text describes. We mentioned that human flourishing or fullness or whatever we want to call it comes about when we first of all embrace our neediness as sinners, as fallen human creatures who live in a fallen sinful world. And then as creatures who identify out of our sin and out of our neediness, identify the true King, Jesus Christ, who's worthy of our worship, who's worthy of giving ourselves to, who's worthy of all of our allegiance, of giving all that we are. And then as we concluded that fullness relates to Christ as King and the daily ebbs and flows in our lives, simply put, embracing the gospel and living out the gospel in our lives is the mark of truly being filled. That's what we talked about last week. Well, in light of that context, think of today's text as this next step in the dance, as the outpouring or the expression of one who has been filled, of one who's encountered Christ, and of one who's living his or her life relating to Christ as king in the daily ebbs and flows. When we embrace the gospel and we live a life that daily looks into the beautiful depths and complexity, but at the same time, the simplicity of the gospel, there's a natural and right accompanying praise that follows. And that's what this text is about today. This is what happens when we're attuned to the way that God is working in our lives. And this text pictures what overflow looks like. So what I want to show us today from this text is that gospel overflow leads us to a number of things probably more things than what we're going to talk about, but in part, gospel overflow leads us to engage in community. It leads us to engage with God, and gospel overflow leads us to engage the promises of God, to take stock of those rich promises of what God promises for his people, and to engage with him and participate in those promises. 
So first, gospel overflow leads us to engage in community or fellowship, we can call it. Let's take a look again at this encounter between Elizabeth and Mary. I want to continue to draw ourselves, our, ourselves back to the text time and time again, just so we're reorienting ourselves with it. So let me read again from this encounter, verses 40 through 45. Read, and she, Mary, entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, and the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, Back in verse 36, in the text we looked at last week, we learned that Elizabeth and Mary, they, they have some type of relationship. They're related in some way. The angel Gabriel, in verse 36, calls Elizabeth Mary's relative. Now, this term for relative is, first of all, rather ambiguous. And some older translations might translate that as saying, Mary and Elizabeth are cousins. Well, that's probably a little bit too bold of a translational decision. It's not out of the question, but that might be a little bit too bold. This is the first and only time this relationship between Mary and Elizabeth is defined. But interestingly, when we come to our text this morning, we find that whatever that familial relationship was, so there was some type of familial relationship, but whether it was the relationship between cousins or some other relationship in a family, whatever that relationship was, it sort of falls to the background in our text. Whatever that relationship was doesn't play a very significant role in our text this morning. I think Ligon Duncan, uh, Ligon Duncan is former uh, pastor of FPC Jackson, current chancellor of RTS, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, he preached on this text, and I think he's right on when he notes that this encounter between, Zach, between uh, Elizabeth and Mary isn't some pseudo-family reunion, nor is it even really the, the meeting up between two expectant mothers. Although, in a sense, it's both of those things. First and foremost, Duncan writes, these are two women... Elizabeth and Mary, who have deep communion in God's providence, and they have deep communion in the gospel. These are two believing women. See, friends, this is the encounter between two women who have been confronted by God's grace. Yes, they have the bond of pregnancy, and yes, they are relatives in some sense, but whatever that is, is secondary to their roles as agents of divine grace in this passage. This interaction is first and foremost fellowship between two believing women. And in light of that, consider the movement that their fellowship takes in this passage. Mary first comes to Elizabeth with great news of how God has worked in her life, how he's worked in her life and how he's worked cosmically through God's people. Mary didn't ask for any of this. She didn't ask for, she she wasn't praying as a 12-year-old girl or maybe even just an early teenager for God Uh, for a child. She wasn't praying for any of that, but for whatever reason, God bestowed this grace upon her. On the other hand, Elizabeth had been asking for this. She had been praying with Zechariah for for God to work in their lives, and although he did, although he answered his prayer, his prayer, as we remember back in 1, 5 through 25, that encounter with uh, the angel Gabriel of Zechariah in the temple, it took a long time for that prayer to be answered. Remember, they were advanced in years, as the text told us. And now in our text today, both of these narratives meet head on. 
the narrative of Elizabeth and the narrative of Mary collide. They meet head on. But rather than contempt for Mary, or rather than tension in the relationship, Elizabeth rejoices with Mary. In fact, she beats Mary to the punch in rejoicing, thanks to John's prenatal prophesying in this text. Well, friends, although this is a special event in redemptive history, this encounter between Elizabeth and Mary, it's also a short but a beautiful picture of what life in the body of believers is supposed to look like. When we come together as a body, even as we meet together right now, many of us are bringing our own successes, we're bringing our joys to the table. Some of us are coming like Mary, ready to share the amazing ways God has been at work in our lives, the amazing ways in which he's been providing or answering our prayers in unique but powerful ways. But others of us, are coming more timid or more reserved to the body. Maybe instead of explicit joy, we're bringing our baggage or our moral failures or something far less than explicit joy. And when in our failures, for instance, we meet another brother or sister's successes, or in our moral failures, we meet another brother or sister's moral victory, a real tension can surface that can often birth a breakdown in oneness within the body. You know, let's face it, it's often very difficult to rejoice with somebody when our hurt is very real and very vivid. And on the other side of the coin, it can be our propensity, intentionally or unintentionally, when things are going well in our lives, to withdraw from those in the body who are hurting. Sometimes we just don't even know where to begin to enter into the mess or the messiness of another brother or sister's lives, so instead we withdraw. Or maybe things are going so well in our lives that we're not even attuned to the multiplicity of ways that real hurt is springing up in a brother or sister's life who's sitting right in your midst right now. Now, friends, there's a lot we could say about the wisdom involved in skillfully entering into the relationships with others, of rejoicing in other people's joys and in meeting with other people's pain, both of which I know that I have failed at and continue to fail at. But this interaction, albeit this very brief interaction between Mary and Elizabeth, is instructive. In part, it serves as a model for what life in the community of believers is intended to look like, what the ideal of life in in fellowship and community should look like. But another related thing that we see in this text is that at the same time we learn about life in the community of believers, this text also teaches us quite a bit about the God who forms us into believers, into a community of believers. One commentator on Luke, on this uh, passage specifically, notes that Luke doesn't narrate for us any prior interaction between Elizabeth and Mary when Mary arrives at Elizabeth's doorstep. In other words, this is the first instance that we meet Mary and Elizabeth coming together in fellowship with one another. It's possible that Mary, and it's also possible that Mary, upon arriving at Elizabeth and Zachariah's doorstep, said something more than what Luke narrates. Keep in mind that our gospel writers, when they write, they're being selective in what they choose to tell us and not tell us. Take a cue from the book of John, where at the very, at very end of the gospel according to John, John tells us that well, if, we were to, if we were to say everything that Christ did and said, there wouldn't be enough books, there wouldn't be enough space in the world for all the books that could be written. So the gospel writers are being selective. They're not telling us every little piece of this narrative. They tell us what's most important. And so as such, it's possible that when Mary arrived at Elizabeth's doorstep of Zechariah and Elizabeth, she said something like, 
hey, Elizabeth, how are you doing? Guess what? I'm pregnant. But Luke doesn't tell us that that happened. Daryl Bach continues in his comments on this passage. I think he notes quite appropriately here, and this is important. He says, rather, Luke literally leaves the impression that it is by the Holy Spirit that Elizabeth perceived who was visiting her. So whether or not there was any further interaction between these two women, we, we just don't know. But the main point from the inspired text that we have before us is that it's only by the Holy Spirit that Elizabeth recognizes Jesus. It's only by the Holy Spirit that she recognizes the significance of who is among her at that moment. Even though this text tells us quite a bit about the community of believers and about the fruit of a life captivated by the gospel, and we'll continue down that path as we continue in the sermon, at its core, this text, like all texts in Scripture, focuses on Jesus Christ. It's by the Holy Spirit that Elizabeth recognizes Jesus, and that it's only by the Holy Spirit that you and I, friends, call Jesus Lord. Our salvation, from start to finish, is a work of God. And as such, this text, in subtle hues and tones, brings together, in fact, the entire Godhead to bear on this situation. The entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in this text. It shows us how the entire Trinity is involved in our salvation. And when by the grace of God we cry out in our hearts, Jesus is Lord, we're at the same time called into a community of believers with others. We're called to join the church. These two two themes or these two theological truths of being a Christian or our theology of salvation and our theology of the church are intimately related. They're not separated. When we become a Christian, we're also called, as much as we like it or might not like it, to join the church to be a part of the community of believers. These two truths are intertwined together. And this is just a small narrative, but it presents in maybe incipient form how these two truths come together and mesh with one another. Although this text doesn't give us a full-fledged theology of salvation or the church, both are pictured as working together. The point here is gospel overflow. The fruit of a life captivated by Jesus Christ, first and foremost, pours out into the lives of others within the Christian community. When we become Christians, when we're filled with the knowledge of God, we pour out into the lives of one another two intimately related truths. And this leads to our second point. Second, gospel overflow, what we're calling it, leads us then to engage with God. The Magnificat, as I've mentioned several times already, I think, is Mary's outpouring or overflow of praise to God. And it's in this text that we find the content and the depth of her praise. It's a really awesome and amazing text, and we're going to dissect it right now. It can be divided essentially into two parts. If you're looking at it in your, in your Bibles or in your bulletins, this poetic text from verses 46 all the way down to 55 can be divided essentially into two parts. And these two parts are from four, verses 46 through 49. Mary rejoices for what God has done and what he will do on her behalf. And then in verses 50 through 55, she rejoices over what God has done and will do for his people more broadly. So first, let's take a look look at these first four verses of the Magnificat, which we'll call Mary's personal praise. And I just want to orient us to the text again, and let me read those first four verses again, where we read Mary singing out, praising, "'My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior.'" For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
Now, the very reason, even structurally in the Greek here, the very reason that Mary praises God can be boiled down to one simple truth from these first four verses, and that is because he has looked upon her. That verb, looked upon in the Greek, communicates this idea of loving care, of tender, of merciful intervention for his people, for God's people. And one story in Luke's gospel that I think really illustrates this picture, flushes this picture out profoundly for us, is Jesus' encounter with the widow of Nain later in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 7. And I'm not going to read that whole text, but if you've, ever, if you've never read that, I would encourage you at some point to go to Luke chapter 7 and read this encounter between Jesus and the widow of Nain. But let me summarize it real quick for us. In Luke 7, Jesus is moving about in his ministry, going town to town. And in Luke chapter 7, he enters this town called Nain, And as he draws near to this town, Jesus, his disciples, and the text tells us this great crowd had been following them too. They sort of run into a funeral procession along the way. They're going one way and this funeral procession stops or goes in front of them. So they're stopping, just waiting for it to go by. Much like if we're out at the stoplight and funeral procession goes by, we're just waiting for the funeral procession to go by. Now, such a funeral procession in, in this culture in first century Israel, I'm sure in times before and afterwards, would have been a pretty big ordeal. In fact, there would have also been people in this funeral procession who would have been paid to walk around and mourn and wail over the dead. So if you can picture a pretty, um, a, a pretty charismatic, maybe, or chaotic scene going on as Jesus and his disciples are stopped waiting for this funeral procession to go by. Yet through all this clamor, of the crowd, of the funeral procession, despite the spectacle in front of him, Jesus, in Luke chapter 7, peers through all of this, and he sees the mother, the mother of this dead son. This, apparently a son had died, and the mother was, was standing there, just quietly weeping. And the text also tells us that she not only had lost her son, but she was also a widow. Presumably, she had also suffered the loss of her husband previously. She's somebody who quite clearly had suffered great loss. And when Jesus sees the widow, it's almost as if in the blink of an eye, he's taken stock of all that she's lost. He's he's able to peer through the clamor and the, the charismatic expression that's going on all around him, peer through and see this widow. And as the text tells us in Luke 7, 13, he saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said, do not weep. Jesus saw not only the outward appearance of this woman, he also saw the deep loss and the hopelessness of which this weeping was only a small reflection. And when he saw her, he didn't turn the other way out of fear of not knowing what to do, nor did he roll her eyes or guilt trip her into how children across the world have it far worse than she does. No, he meets her in her pain. And friends, this is the type of compassion that God has for Mary. He looked upon her with compassion and tenderness that only our Heavenly Father can do. This is how God looks at his people, too. This is how he looks at you and I. We previously noted that from start to finish, salvation is a work of God. And if God has worked in your life to draw you to himself, if he's worked in your life by drawing you to himself and drawing you even into this body of believers in this church, then surely he's looking upon you in your grief right now. Although this sermon has largely been focused on the topic of rejoicing or what we've been entitling gospel overflow or any one of those synonyms you want to use, I'm sure some of us 
might be in a place right now where there seems to be very little to rejoice over. But if this explains you, you don't need to lie to yourself. You don't need to pretend that it's not there. But at the same time, I want to encourage you that there is something real and profound that we can take hold of. If God has drawn you to himself, there is, there is cause for rejoicing. It might be quiet or reserved or only incipient rejoicing. But even when we're just holding on by a thread, we can still rejoice because God is still God despite the mess of our lives. He's still the God who looks upon us with tender mercy. He's still the God who has looked upon us in our pain. He's still the God who hasn't turned his back on our laments. And he's still the God who calls us our own, his own. Despite our sin, despite our mess, if we are his people, he calls us his own. And this text also presents, this, these first four verses of the Magnificat specifically, presents a beautiful picture in that in the same breath, that Mary rejoices that God has looked upon her and that God looks upon his people, that he looks upon you and I with tender and loving mercy. In the same breath, she also praises God for his transcendence or his otherness. He is the God who looked upon those of humble estate, but he's also the God Mary rejoices in 149, who is mighty. He has done great things for me and holy is his name. He's the God who enters into our lives with compassion, yes. But he's also the God whose compassion isn't powerless or empty. This is the God, after all, who raises the dead. And that's a theme we see even in Luke chapter 7, and it's a theme we see preeminently in the resurrection of Christ. His compassion, his tenderness towards us, isn't empty. It's not powerless tenderness or compassion. In these last few verses, short as they may be, Luke and Mary hold together the dance of God's transcendence and imminence, and it's a beautiful dance as he works in our lives. This is the God who draws near to us in love, who bids us to draw near to him too, who hears our prayers, our meditations, and our laments, and he's the same God who's powerful enough to weave the complexity of our sorrow, the complexity of our sin even, for his glory and somehow for our good. Well, this leads us to our final point. Finally, gospel overflow leads us to engage the promises of God, to take stock of what, in fact, he does promise, and then to take hold of those promises as our own, as his people. So let's look again at the Magnificat. This time, I'm going to look at the second half of the Magnificat, as I've articulated, and let me just read it again for us. This is verses 50 through 55, where we read, And his, God's mercy, is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever." Now, for each one of these promises that we see articulated in these last few verses, for filling the hungry, for helping Israel, for speaking to our fathers, for all of these different actions that we read about here, we could look back into the Old Testament and see the various ways in which God graciously and powerfully worked for his people. In the Exodus event, for instance, which, by the way, the Exodus event is the primary motif throughout Scripture, used throughout Scripture for articulating how how God saves. 
Um, in the Exodus event, for instance, we see that God provided for his people, among other ways, by providing manna for them, by feeding them in the wilderness. In a very physical way, to, re- to reflect Mary's language here, he has filled the hungry with good things. He did that in the Exodus. God also spoke to his people. He's the God who speaks to his people. And in that Exodus event, we see God's voice thundering from Mount Sinai. He spoke powerfully to his people through his servant Moses and on the Mount, Mount Sinai. And as the author of Hebrews tells us, God didn't just speak once. He continued to speak through his prophets in many times and in various ways, as Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 articulates for us. But the Exodus is that pattern. It's the language, the, uh, the imagery that's, that's sent forth in the scripture, that's propelled in the scripture for describing how God saves us. In fact, just a quick factoid, when we read in verse 51 that he has shown strength with his arm, that's a telltale sign that Exodus imagery is being evoked. One commentator notes that that imagery of God showing strength with his hand is sort of a formulaic shorthand for how God's power was revealed in the Exodus and how it's even revealed uh, now. That imagery is used quite often. But while Mary is evoking this Exodus imagery, while she's reflecting upon all of the ways in which God has worked in the past and this pattern of how God continued to work for his people, She's at the same time rejoicing in a very forward-thinking way. The Greek of each one of these verbs, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has filled the hungry. Even though they're written in the past tense for us, they actually communicate something that will happen in the future. They communicate something that's yet to happen, but they're so guaranteed to happen that the author writes them in the past, in the past tense. If you're interested in Greek, it's called a prophetic aorist. It's something, that has, it's something that's so certain to happen that the author can express them in the past tense. This would be like saying that World War II was won on D-Day. Although there would be many years of fighting ahead in the European theater, uh, after D-Day, historians will say that Allied victory was so assured that it's almost as if we could speak of it in the past tense, that World War II was won on D-Day. Now, the point is that when we look back at how God has graciously worked in history, and even by meditating on how he's already at work in our lives, we can be so confident in the promises of God, in those things yet to come, of what he'll ultimately do for his people, that we can speak of them as if they're so sure that they've already happened, in a sense. The pattern of how God worked in the past gives us certainty in the present for how he's going to work in the future. It's this beautiful dance that Mary is employing here in this text. Now, on the one hand, this isn't a call to ignore the commands of Scripture or to brush aside the importance of cultivating Christian virtue. Although these promises are so sure, we also know that we're called in various ways to live a Christian life. But on the other hand, real comfort, real comfort comes to bear in our lives when we know that God is weaving together the complexity of our lives, the complexity of our tragedy the complexity of our pain, of our sorrows, and even, the, even the, the magnitude of our sin, all for his glory. And we as his people, we're partakers of the promises of God. Gospel overflow rejoices in these promises and that these promises belong to us. Well, in conclusion then, true biblical rejoicing is the fruit of a life that has been filled by the gospel the overflow or the outpouring of true human flourishing. Such overflow takes place in the context of fellowship among the body of believers, as we mentioned at the outset. 
Gospel overflow also then leads us to meet with God and engage with God because he's the God who has drawn near to his people. He's the God who's looked upon you or I, and he's the God whose who's gaze upon us, whose tender mercy and compassion upon us isn't powerless. It's quite powerful. And gospel overflow leads us again and again to the reality of the promises of God. Not only that they're real promises, but that they're not empty promises. They're promises, in fact, that are so certain to happen that we can express them, in a sense, as if they've already happened. Gospel overflow, true biblical rejoicing, is the product of what God has done in our lives and what he's doing even now and what he's going to do in the future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for filling your people with all good things, for giving us the Spirit, for giving us the ability to commune with you here today and in our daily lives. And Father, we pray that as we commune with you throughout this week, that you would draw us again and again to your promises, what you promise for your people, and to take stock of how you've worked in the past as encouragement for the surety of your promises and the surety of your word. You are our God. We are your people. We thank you for drawing us to yourself, for calling us your own, and for giving us this multiplicity, this ubiquity of promises and hope, for restoring our hope. We love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.